Yeah, teaching voice or teaching singing. So I grew up doing lots of singing, just like most kids, right? Like, I don't, I don't think I've ever met a child who's like, I hate singing when they're like five and six. For me, that love of singing just never went away. So I did a whole bunch of musical theater primarily growing up. And uh, as I was going through and, you know, started taking private voice lessons myself, my teacher's like, you know, maybe you should go to music school. So I was like, okay, cool. So off I went to music school. I did my bachelor's and my master's. And sort of this whole time I was like, I'm going to be a performer. I'm going to go and I'm going to audition and I want to see the world and blah, 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 blah. But as I was like just starting my master's, I was like, ah, you know, the more I hear about the performing lifestyle, the more my A-type personality is like, maybe that's not for me. Like the gig life where, you know, you never know where your next paycheck is coming from. You're moving all the time. You're living in hotels, living out of a suitcase. I was like, that is going to make me panic. And I don't think I'm going to like it. So I uh, started really having an interest in pedagogy, which is like the science of teaching um, and vocal pedagogy in particular, of course, so the science of teaching, singing. Um, and I took a really excellent class when I was doing my master's and I got a chance to do some teaching uh, as part of the course. And I was like, yep, that is exactly where I want to be. I want to be teaching. So I finished my master's. I moved back to Saskatoon and uh, started teaching. I built my studio and here we are now. That's my full-time gig. What about the teaching made you know that it clicked? Yeah, it was just so much fun to take this thing that I'm like so passionate about singing and performing and telling stories because that's really so much of what singing and art is about. And being able to share that with other people who are interested in learning more was just so freeing. It was so much fun to connect with people and help them realize their own singing goals. Oh, so you enjoyed taking them from a zero level up to where they didn't believe they could get to. Yeah, absolutely. Or even if they're coming to me and they're at a 100 level, giving, getting them to 102, you know, like every single person that stepped into my studio has had a different journey. And I have had people walk in who are already incredible singers, already doing lots of, you know, community theater here in the city or, um, you know, being in their high school productions. And then I've also had people who were told as small children that they shouldn't sing and in their school choirs that, you know, we don't want you to sing out. So like, can you be a little quieter so that we don't hear you? Right. And I've had people coming to me from all different walks of life. And it's so cool how music and singing is the one thing that we all can access and we can all do it and we can all learn to be better. Even those people who think they're tone deaf because tone deafness isn't real. Not real? Well, okay. It's not not real. There's a very, 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 very small percentage of people who are actually tone deaf. Most of the time, the people who can't sing in tune, it's a, it's a muscle coordination issue. So they aren't able to he take the information that they're hearing, the pitches that they want to be creating, and align their muscles in the right way to create that same sound. So that's something just like learning to kick a soccer ball in a, you know, semi-consistent direction. It, it's something that we can learn to do. It's a, it's a motor skill. So singing comes down to muscle control then. Yeah, absolutely. So then when you're saying you loved the pedagogy, what stood out to you? Yeah. Okay. So singing is one of those really cool 
instruments because unlike anything else, piano, trombone, tuba, flute, you can actually see those instruments. There are buttons or frets. There's something tangible that you can hold in your hands or that you can sit in front of and see and understand how it is operating. And the voice is completely different from that because the instrument is inside of our own bodies. And while I was going through, I was, I was learning all about, you know, the anatomy of the larynx and the breathing systems and how that all works together, which is really cool for a nerd like me. But if I were to say to my student, oh, well, your cricorytonides need to be doing this a little bit differently, that would mean absolutely nothing. So the thing that's really cool and that I love so much about singing is that the challenge of coming up with language that can articulate what I am asking the body to do without specifically saying you need to do this because we don't have a sense. Most people who walk into my studio don't have like a very in-depth and anatomical view of their voice from the inside, right? That's not really something that we have. So we use a lot of imagery. We use a lot of like imaginative skills to elicit these sounds from the singers. Really? Yeah. So you use the visualization to change the knowledge into skill? Yeah. So visualization is a really great way of getting started. And then once they're sort of figuring it out, we also go to the way that the sound feels inside of our body. So in a lot of the work that I'm doing, I'm a neurovocal method certified teacher, which means that I teach in a way that trains your brain to sing because of course just like any other motor memory that we have or muscle memory that we have it starts in the brain first so every time we make an or we intend to like take an action our brain has to send the signals first so it teaches our brains to make the new signals to create the new sounds that we want so what's step one in this process? <laughs> okay, well, step number one is asking my student where their voice is in their body. So do you know where your voice is in your body, Tony? My diaphragm? Your diaphragm? That's okay. This is such a good answer. And a lot of people answer the same thing. But no, your diaphragm is part of your breathing muscle. It doesn't make any sound. Do you want to take another guess? My vocal cords. Your vocal cords. Ding, ding, ding. Yes, exactly. So, so your vocal cords live in your throat, right? If you take a nice big swallow, you can feel that there's a little lump inside your throat that goes up and down. And that's what houses your vocal folds. So that's step one. It's just like having that awareness of, okay, there's these two tiny little muscles that vibrate together. And every time we make a sound, that's, that's what's working. It's only two muscles? muscles? Yeah, well, they're the two that vibrate together to make the sounds. Okay. Yeah. Chords, plural, a couple of chords. Yeah, yeah. So the, the chords are what we call the two muscles that vibrate together. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that's so now I have it in my head. What's step two? Okay, so then step two, once we know that, then we bring awareness to the fact that we can feel the voice inside of our body. We can feel the vibrations of those two little vocal folds and the air that they send. So we can feel those, those sound waves traveling through our body. So we make some really nasty sounds in my studio. Lots of hmm sort of things where it, I, it, it's not pretty. <laughs> it's not pretty at all. But it allows the singers to start to bring awareness to, 
oh, yeah, I can feel that vibration and I feel it here in my body. And it's going to be different for everyone because we all perceive things a little bit differently. Okay. Yeah. And then we can sort of play around with, oh, well, maybe you feel that vibration and it feels like it's kind of way back in your throat. Hmm. And then, oh, maybe we want to experiment with bringing it more forward. Hmm. And you can start to start to have um, a map of where those uh, vibrations are happening. And then you can tinker with it a little bit. So you can develop control of where that vibration is going anywhere in your body then. Well, I don't or think that you could... in your nest- head? Yeah, in your, in your head, in your like mouth, nasal cavity, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't think you're going to feel vibration in your big toe anytime soon, but... Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I gotcha. So then what surprised you when you first started teaching? Yeah, okay, so the biggest thing that surprised me, I'd have to say, was just how tricky it is. And I'm sure that teachers everywhere can sympathize with this. Just how tricky it was coming from a a super educational background, like having so much singing experience and then having a seven-year-old student standing in front of me who's like, I've sung before because I'm seven, but I don't know anything. And trying to remember what it was like to be a beginner and what it was like to be really scared of standing in front of a complete stranger and ask and them asking you to make sound and to sing right as a society i feel like we take or we put so much pressure on singers it's like oh we need to you know sound a specific way and singing is an art and it must be amazing and all these things right so you're asking a little 7 year old student to sing it could be twinkle, twinkle, little star, but already they're starting to feel that pressure of, okay, well now I'm in front of a stranger and I need to do this thing. And my mom said it needs to be good and I need to get better or else I can't do it anymore. <laughs> oh, oh, right? That's so, a lot of pressure. It's a, it is a lot of pressure. So I think that was the most surprising thing is, you know, having these students and, and I'm using a seven-year-old student as an example, but I've had 60-year-old students who come in feeling the same way and learning to create that space and not rushing into things and not feeling like I need to fix everything right away or I don't even need to bring everything up right away. <laughs> so before, did you used to bring everything up? I wouldn't bring everything up, but I, it was really, uh, I guess, I felt the need to, to validate my own validity as a, as a newer voice teacher that, oh, well, I need to prove to you that I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, which was, I mean, I think we've all maybe gone through something like that where we feel like we need to prove ourselves in some way. So I think that as a newer voice teacher, that was something that was really tricky for me. It was surprising to realize that, oh, I can back off. And then it's actually so much better. My students progress more quickly. We all have more fun. It's way less stressful. So how did you stumble upon that? That realization? Yeah. I think it, it, honestly, trial and error. (laughs) Trial and error. Um, And my own learning just about how the brain works. Um, So you're pretty good at self-assessing then. Well, I try. (laughs) (laughs) So what's a memorable moment where a student comes in who's super shy and you see a big change in them? 
Oh my goodness. This is like almost everyone in my studio. Oh. I, I feel like I, I often attract the the shy underdog types, which is honestly, I love it so much. And I love being able to like boost them up. It gives me so much joy. One of my favorite, favorite, favorite examples, and this one's recent. Um, one of my students, she'd been studying with me for a long time, but when she first came to my studio, she was really, really timid. She didn't want to make a lot of sound. She's like, well, I'm a really quiet singer. I don't like making big sounds. So we worked with that for a while. It's like, okay, like that's, that's totally fine. And as, as time went on, I was like, okay, let's, let's push for just a little bit more sound. Let's push for just a little bit more sound. And then it, puberty hit. <laughs> and, and so she actually stepped away from the studio for a bit. She's like, I just, I just can't right now. It's like, that's fine. And then she came back to me last year and she's like, you know what, Aaliyah? You're right. When I do this, 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 and when I make a little bit more sound and when I use a little bit more breath, it feels so much easier. And now she's trying to convert everyone else in the soprano section at her high school choir that like, you guys just need to sing out more. And I'm like, you know... That is maybe the best thing is that when my students have seen the transformation and now they're like, wait, and they're literally preaching to the choir about <laughs> what they want. What's a, what's a soprano section? What does this mean? Yeah. So in choir, we have four different uh, voice sections. So there's bass, tenor, alto, and soprano. So the sopranos sing the highest notes and then alto is uh, a little lower. Tenor is after that. And then bass are the lowest tones. Traditionally, we have estrogen-influenced voices at the top in soprano and alto, and then testosterone-based voices in tenor and bass section. How important is it to find out where you are in that four-tone range? Yeah, so this is really important if you're going to be singing in a choir, um, because when you're singing in a choir, you're asked to sing in that register for prolonged periods of time. We also just want you to be comfortable, right? We, If I were to ask you, for example, to sing way up here all the time, then you would probably get really, really tired and it wouldn't feel good and you probably wouldn't like it very much. Okay, so you try to cater it to where their natural ability is. Yeah, where their vo- natural, comfortable vocal range is. How do you find that out? Ooh, this is a good question. (laughs) So whether you're in a voice lesson or like auditioning for a choir or what have you, we'll take you through a a series of different exercises. And the exercises aren't prescribed. They don't have to be anything in particular. But we'll lead you through exercises and just see, okay, where we start in a comfy middle and then let's go up and let's see how high can we go until we start getting a little uncomfortable or hearing a little bit of that squeeze or that pinchy sound or tension coming into the voice. And then we do the same thing down to the bottom. Where are we feeling like they're bottoming out? And then from there, we can sort of figure out what the comfortable range is. Now, with a very beginning student or a very beginner singer, that doesn't mean that that's all they've got. It just means that that's what's easily accessible for them right now. The accessible range can increase. If there is a lot of tension, say at the top, then we can, you know, work to free up those upper notes. And then suddenly you've got more pitches up there that you can hit. How do you do that? 
How do you do that? Well, that is really singer specific. Um, okay. It depends on, yeah, it depends on sort of where their hang up is, if they have one for the upper range, for example, um, which is really, really common. A lot of uh, estrogen uh, dominant singers that come into my studio find that we don't, we don't sing way, way up high. And if you listen to the radio, there's a pretty clear answer to why we don't do that. A lot of the stuff has a much smaller range. So when I'm asking singers to sing, you know, notes that are above the staff, for example, we often shy away from those. So finding ways to, you know, give a little bit more breath and honestly, part of it is just being a little bit more fearless up there and allowing those sounds to come out of the body. I always say to my students that there's two things you need for a high note, which is space and breath. That's basically it. So what's the space part of it? Yeah, so the space is that that relaxation. So allowing the jaw to drop, allowing the soft palate to lift on the inside of your mouth. So if you run your tongue along the top of your mouth and you feel all that bumpy stuff, that's your hard palate. If you keep going, then it gets squishy. That's your soft palate. And it can lift to create a little bit more space for the sound to bounce around in to resonate. And uh, it... So you learn to lift the soft palate. That's a lot of muscle control. You'd think so. But if you yawn, you do it. <laughs> That's awesome. So then with the higher end singers, what do you do to take them from that 100% to that 102%? Yeah, so that is entirely dependent on their goals. In my studio, I'm really, really client-centered. So some of my students are just wanting to uh, explore different styles. So if they come in and they're like, you know, I've been singing XYZ, but I want to sing ABC then we explore that. So if I have students here coming up and they're already incredible musical theater singers, but they're like, ah, but I just want a little bit more power in my belting range. Then we work on that. What's a belting range? A belting range. Ooh, okay. So (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this is so much fun. I love nerding out. (laughs) (laughs) So your belting range um, is, is kind of those big, almost brassy sounds that are in sort of your low to mid range for estrogen dominant voices. So if you're listening to the radio, unless you're listening to like Billie Eilish, for example, you're probably hearing a belty town or a belty sound. Um, like Taylor Swift is belting, Beyonce is belting. Everyone's doing that big, that big broad. Okay, singing. so belting's not a volume; it's a range. Hmm. Yeah, it's a range and a tonal quality. So, what are the other ranges? There's a belting range. Are there any others? Yeah. So there's the belting range. There's also uh, if you've listened to, um, oh goodness, I'm gonna forget her name. But there's whistle, whistle register. The all I want for Christmas okay. is you. I don't remember who that is. Do you remember who that is? <laughs> no. <laughs> This it's is gonna, what, it's gonna it'll plague us for a bit, <laughs> right? This is what happens when you're doing a podcast is you like forget half of the things that are in your brain. So I'm sure everyone else was like, I can't believe you don't know who that is. Anyway, so that's your. Wait, you talking Mariah Carey? Mariah Carey. Is that it? Yeah. So All right. Just doing the, ah, <laughs> stuff up there. That's your whistle. Yeah. Um, and then there's also the head voice, or what I call M2, um, which is a little bit higher than that sort of that belting range. Um, and it, it, it can really vary. It can, it can be kind of a chameleon. You can hear it as part of that like lower belty sound, depending on, again, where you're putting those vibrations in your head. Yeah. So if you want to sing stuff that's on the radio, mm-hmm. you want to work on your belting range. Yeah, most people do. So that's generally what people come in for? Yeah, I'd say that that is um, 
a very, very popular request is to work on that belt. Give it a little bit more oomph. That's a technical term, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Where did you find the most success with your students? What technique did you use? Yeah. So I just finished my neural vocal method um, certification. And this method is astounding. And I've just been implementing it with a few of my students. Um, sort of, they were, they were my little test subjects. They didn't know it. Um, but using these techniques, it's been incredibly successful because it's so, so simple. I only give students one objective at a time. So for example, if we're using that first exercise where we're working to find, oh yeah, I can feel that vibration in my body, then that's all we're looking for. And once we find sort of their sweet spot for where that wants to sit, then we'll take them through their range. Okay. Can we get it to feel the same way here? What about here? What about here? Go for the feeling, go for the feeling, go for the feeling, not the way that it sounds. And the reason that this is so beneficial is because the room that you're singing in has an impact on the way that we hear the sound because the acoustics of the space are also resonating your voice. So if I'm in your space, this is a really nice like resonant space that we're in right now. It would sound fantastic in here. Just like singing in the shower. Everyone sounds amazing in the shower. The acoustics in a shower are fantastic. Are you kidding or is that real? No, that, that's for real. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> you don't sing in the shower, Tony? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's your homework now. Yeah. <laughs> sing in the shower and listen to how great you sound. I'm going to try it. That's great. Okay, okay. <laughs> yeah, but if we go outside, we're going to get less feedback. There's less things that are bouncing the sound back at us. So it's going to sound different to our own ears. And if I go into a room with a whole bunch of carpet and soft, plushy furniture and stuff, same thing. That's going to absorb a lot of the sound we're going to get less feedback so if we're always listening and trying to create the same aural or like auditory feedback then we're going to be using our voices in a different way in every single setting which can cause us to have more tension and really not be able to create the sounds that we want so you can be more consistent by paying attention to what's going on internally exactly exactly so it's like shifting our attention spotlight onto what does that feel like in my body? And then then we'll be able to create that same sound, whatever goal sound it is that we have. We'll be able to make that sound in the shower, but we'll also be able to go outside and sing. And we could go and sing at an open mic night at a tiny cafe or at a ginormous theater and be able to produce the same sound in a way that's healthy and sustainable and the result that we're looking for. So then in the shower, you're saying we get more feedback because it bounces off more? Yes. And then you can adjust quicker. Yeah, so we're getting more feedback. So it, it, it resonates the sound more. So for example, if you are talking into a pillow that muffles the sound, right? <laughs> a lot, <laughs> right? So we're not getting a lot back. It sounds like a quiet sound. But if you go into the shower, right, it's an enclosed space. Usually there's not a lot of soft textiles in a bathroom, a few towels. So we're getting lots of ping. The sound is bouncing around a whole bunch. So really, it's like an amplifier. It amplifies that sound, makes it sound more robust, a little bit more oomph, to use that word again. Uh, So we, we perceive it as like this amazing sound. 
And it's such a good feeling to sing in the shower. Okay. I'm, I definitely have to try that. Yeah. Okay. So when you were talking about that sweet spot, mm-hmm. what is that sweet spot that you feel? Yeah. So the sweet spot, again, this is sort of genre dependent. Um, if you're doing musical theater, like contemporary musical theater or pop, it's going to be different from if you're singing opera or classical music. But for the sake of our conversation today, um, if we're talking about pop and that contemporary style, um, then it's going to be, it's a more forward sound. So we're going to be looking for the buzz somewhere in the front of the face and it's also going to be a place where you don't feel anything at all happening in the throat what yeah so you will only feel it near the front of your face exactly exactly so once you find that sweet spot we've got this beautiful pingy sound at the uh, that feels like it's resonating at the front and even though the muscles are obviously working in the throat right we talked about where the voice is in the body we don't perceive anything happening here. It is easy as can be when you find your sweet spot. And you can just sing for hours upon hours upon hours because all the muscles that are working to create that sound are perfectly balanced and coordinated in the way that they're needing to be. So you're not straining at all during this process? Not at all. So you said you find that sweet spot and then you play around with it. So what's this playing around with it mean? Yeah, so once you find that sweet spot and playing around with it means like, okay, so we can find that sweet spot on this pitch. Can we do it a little bit higher? What happens if we start moving through pitches and sliding through things? Can we find that sweet spot way in the top of your range? Can we find that sweet spot in the bottom of your range? So that the entire range that we're using to sing eventually feels that easy and is that flexible. Okay, so you're going through the ranges and you're trying to keep that same feeling. Mm-hmm. And that's how you're assessing the whole time to see if you're straining or not. Yeah, yeah. It's oh. all about that. We call it interoceptive or being uh, perceptive of what is happening on the inside. All right. You were saying in a way where you can strain or an unhealthy way to sing. What was that? Yeah. So if any of your listeners are tuning in and have sung before, then they might understand what this feels like. Um, But if you're singing in a way where things aren't well balanced, they aren't well coordinated, um, then what happens is then there's the muscles that work to create the sound are working in a non-optimal way. And if they're working in a non-optimal way, we can start to feel like a little pinch, a little squeeze, sometimes even like full-on pain in the throat, through the tongue, in the jaw. Yeah, as you're going through, um, going through your singing. And, uh, you know, if any of you have done some like super long choir rehearsals, I know there's choirs out in our city who rehearse for two hours and If you're at the end of a rehearsal and you haven't been singing optimally, then you're tired. You're tired and your voice is fatigued because, again, we've used these muscles in a way that isn't ideal. It's not going to set you up for prolonged success. Now, that is what's most common. There is also, like, you can get into territory of danger of actual, like, vocal injury. Um, So if you think about Adele... Adele has had to take time away from singing to deal with things like vocal nodes, which are the result of improper vocal use. So her voice sounded great to Mm me. Yeah. And that was sometimes she did it improperly that could lead to injury. Yeah. Yeah. That overuse, that overstrain 
um, can lead to injury. I would say like most of the time people don't have to be super, super, super worried unless they're really heavy vocal users um, or they're like predispositioned for a condition like that. So when you say heavy vocal users, what do you mean? Yeah. So someone that is singing all the time or using their voice a lot. Um, so people like teachers, for example, who are talking all the time, they are professional vocal users, whether they think of themselves that way or not, right? They're constantly talking and often at a loud volume to be heard over, you know, droves of children. So they're, they're using their voice heavily. So if they are wanting to sing or maybe they're singing in a choir or they're doing a musical or whatever then they're really using their voices a lot so that's really important for them to be singing and producing their voices even when they're speaking in a healthy way just to take care of that instrument even when you're speaking mm-hmm, like can make a huge difference so you have to be paying attention all the time to how you're using your voice yeah, and eventually you don't have to pay quite as much attention because it just becomes your new normal. It's just the way that you do the thing, right? <laughs> so what are some of the signs of improper voice usage when you're not singing? Yeah, so same thing if you're finding that you're really vocally tired, um, you know, feeling feeling tight in the throat or, or, or feeling like through the day your voice changes the way that it's sounding and it gets to be less energized then that's a really good indication that hmm, maybe it's worth either talking to a voice teacher or if it's for speech an SLP a speech language pathologist um, might be able to help you sort of just make sure that things are going on and if you are experiencing pain in the throat frequently it's consistent then get thyself to an ENT that's an ear nose and throat specialist and they can do a what's called a scope where they send a little camera through your nasal cavities to look down at your throat it's not very comfortable um but they can check and just make sure that everything's kosher down there all right so sometimes it could be something physical but other times it could be poor technique Right, right. And the and the poor technique is physical in some ways too, right? It's the it's the coordination of the musculature. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. Now what are you talking about with Adele? She had to do vocal nodes? Yeah, so vocal nodes are when you have um kind of like a blister on the vocal cords, right? Because you think about it, so the we have those two vocal cords and they're little muscles and they actually like hit together hundreds and hundreds of times per second. So it's so fast. So when you're singing, um, like if you're singing a soprano high C, that's not middle C, not the next one, but the next one up, your vocal folds are vibrating together 1,000 times every single second. So that's a lot of friction between those two muscles. So if everything isn't coordinated, if it's not balanced well, then just like if you're running in shoes that don't fit you well, right, you're getting that that friction over and over and over and over again, and it can create blisters. And those blisters are called vocal nodes. Yeah, vocal nodes or vocal polyps are a very similar idea as well. How do you get rid of them? Um, a lot of vocal rest. A lot of vocal rest. Um, and then there are like medical professionals who will lead you through different exercises and other um, modalities just to make sure that you're really taking care of that instrument. But rest, rest, rest is the most important thing. Thankfully, I don't think that it's like, it's not super common. There are people that I know who have dealt with vocal injury, but it's, they're pretty resilient little muscles. They are meant to be 
beat together. So that's sort of their function. That that's kind of <laughs> what they do. So you know. As long as we're taking care of our vocal health in other ways, like making sure we're hydrated, getting good sleep, then those things are really going to be beneficial. Um, and even those who are singing, there are lots of people who never take a voice lesson in their life and are super famous and have had no vocal issues. Even if, you know, to a trained ear, you might be like, mm, that seems a little, that seems like we could do some tweaking and make that easier. Oh, how is it when you listen to music? Because I'm assuming you have a trained ear. I do. Yeah. And sometimes it's great. And like, wow, that is so cool what they're doing. And then occasionally you're listening. It's like, oh, oh, we could we could make that sound so much easier. It sounds like they're working really, really hard. And we don't want them to feel like they're working really hard. We make a face. We make like the, if you've ever seen like pictures of singers when they're on stage and they like got the microphone, their face is all scrunched up and it looks like they're like trying so hard. And it's like, wow, they're amazing. And look at all that effort. It should feel like nothing. So we call it the face. (laughs) (laughs) So then who's doing it right and who is not? So again, this is... (laughs) This is one of those things that that depends and it depends on the day and it depends on what you're listening to. So for me, I guess as a listener, when I'm hearing uh, people in person, like live bands, that's when I most frequently I'm like, oh, that there's a thing. There's a thing. And honestly, I've, I try really hard as a voice teacher to just let that go because I want to just enjoy music the way that everyone else does. However, it still creeps up. It does. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How do you keep it at bay? How do I keep it at bay? I think kind of like what I was chatting about earlier uh, about what surprised me as a voice teacher when I first got started It's just realizing that everyone's on their own vocal journey. And if they're having fun and they're killing it on stage and they're enjoying the way that their voice feels and the process that they're going through as a musician, then that's more important than having an instrument that is functioning at 100% optimization. Mm, You have to enjoy that instrument too. Exactly. So then what is enjoyable for you to listen to? I love listening to people like Regina Spector. Um, She is one of my absolute favorite artists. What I love so much about her is that she uses her voice in so many different ways to tell stories. And, And I brought this up earlier as well. But it's when people are so into their music that they don't necessarily care about it being pretty all the time. And instead they're focusing on sharing whatever it is that they have to say in a really authentic, genuine manner, whatever that sounds like. Like I'm thinking of Regina Spector, um, folding chair. It's fantastic. And in the middle of it, she starts singing this like little vocal riff and she sounds like a dolphin. Oh, <laughs> like she sounds like a dolphin and she's making this sound and it's, so cool to hear a singer doing that and taking that risk and really getting into the the words and the, the text and the story. Yeah, she's exploring. Yeah. And then so it sounds as if this Regina Spector is using her voice as an instrument sometimes, but also as a tool to be enjoyed. You can beat it up. That's what tools are for. Exactly. Exactly. So anytime I see 
a performer and honestly like it doesn't matter if they're professionals or not if I go to our Saskatoon music festival and I'm watching a class of 10 year old girls sing you know maybe from Annie or whatever else they're singing it's the ones who are so into the story who get into that character and you can just see the love of music and the joy of what they're doing pouring out on that stage that is so exciting for me as a teacher so you enjoy seeing them passionate in their element at that time exactly exactly and it's just it's so beautiful to see people taking because it is it is a risk it is again unlike any other instrument your voice is part of your body you can't just like get mad and walk away from the piano you can't just you know leave your violin in its case you have to carry that with you all day long and our voices are so often tied to our identity and our worthiness right how we decide that we are confident and how we decide that we are worthy and valuable and worth being heard. Yeah, our voices and body language are our main forms of communication. Mm -hmm. So then what do you encourage a new singer to do? The very first thing when a student comes to me is I encourage them to play. We get into a really playful um a playful vibe in the studio and honestly this never goes away this idea of play of exploration with the voice so that it doesn't get quite so nitpicky and it doesn't feel so heavy because when we're playing then a lot of those habitual tensions just sort of don't show up it's like oh you know what we're gonna we're gonna sing a little like a monkey and we're gonna go ooh 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 and, you know, we can make all these weird sounds. And again, this depends a lot on the age of the student. I wouldn't make an adult student sing like a monkey. Maybe it'd be fun, though. <laughs> Maybe it would be fun. Oh, a lot of my adult students, If I, I'll share this podcast, and I'm sure some of them will listen to it, and they'll be like, yes, you do. <laughs> <laughs> so it starts with play. Don't take yourself too seriously. Yeah, don't take yourself too seriously and just let's explore what our voices can do let's see how we can you know use our voice to make quiet sounds or loud sounds or a a whole bunch of you know just exploring the range of sounds that we have in our color palette and then being like okay then what feels good is that that sweet spot again yeah (laughs) so before when you were talking about so you need air and space Mm -hmm. what are your favorite tactics to get air and space yeah oh these are good (laughs) so um for space uh, again this is dependent on where you are in the range everything is kind of I, I, i mean everything is so specific to the singer because we all have different physiology but it, <laughs> you just perked up. Um, we all have different physiology, right? So I might need more space to make this note than you do if your vocal cords are slightly smaller than mine or whatever. It's all, it's kind of scientific in that way. But to create space, we do a lot of just relaxing of the, of the jaw. So I like to do lots of massage of the jaw. I actually get my singers to like put their hands on their faces and sort of massage downwards as they're singing. It feels so good. <laughs> um, also using the mirror as a tool. I always tell my students, your mirror is your free teacher at home. <laughs> Look in the mirror if you're singing something, especially if it's in the upper parts of your range and you notice that your mouth is open about the width of a pencil, drop your jaw and they'll do it and they'll be like oh yeah no that was easy earlier thanks so much like well look at yourself in the mirror it does the trick (laughs) so bigger mouth opening yeah 
Yeah. So allowing that. And again, this is something that we want to relax rather than cranking the jaw open. Because if you feel the difference, we could do it just right now. If we just let the jaw drop versus if you forcibly or open your jaw. Mm, Yeah. Tons of tension. Yeah. So much tension right in those chewing muscles on the side. Right. So that again, we want as much ease and freedom as possible. So allowing that droopy jaw um, and then space. I like to think of like a yawn or a surprise breath. Uh, so I often get my singers, if, if we're doing warm-ups and stuff to do, okay, no, imagine someone told you that you get to go to Disneyland today and they all go, and that lifts the soft palate. So then we use that breath and then we go into our exercise starting at our upper note and we have all this beautiful space to start off with. Oh, so they get to recognize the feeling of an open palate and try to mimic it in other areas. Exactly. All right, so how do you get more air? Yeah, so more air uh, is partially just intention. So thinking of having more energy. I like to use the word breath energy a lot in my studio because if I say, okay, send more air, then usually people (laughs) really like, uh, forcibly send air where they engage their abdominal muscles and everything gets really tight, right? They go, Oh, I shouldn't have done that into the microphone. That's a bad idea. Um, right. But they send a lot of air and with it, a lot of tension. So instead, you know, looking at the words and being like, okay, well, you know, you're feeling very passionate in this phrase. We need a little bit more energy, right? And then just thinking, okay, let's tap into the emotion because our breath and our emotion are tied together. Have you ever noticed how you breathe differently when you're angry than when you're really calm or when you're excited? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You, thinking back to it, yes. <laughs> yeah. Right. So if we're matching the breath energy to the energy of the phrase, the emotional energy of a phrase, then generally that balances things out. Um, but other things that we do are we use um, different tools. So like I like to get my students sort of spinning their fingers to elicit a little bit more breath. Sometimes we'll use um, like the stretchy therabands or like the resistance loops to engage the breath in a different way. Um, getting the body moving. Yeah. So what's an ideal position to sing? Uh, so the ideal position to sing, if you were to ask someone in a a pedagogy class in a textbook, they would tell you that you need to be standing straight with your (laughs) sternum high and all these things. Really the most important thing is that your neck posture is really, um, nice and straight. So a lot of People now have their heads jutted way forward, our chins come forward. So just making sure that that's aligned a little bit further back. So we're feeling that the neck and shoulders just feel light so that the head feels like it's sort of just floating on top of our shoulders rather than sort of slumping one way or the other. Oh, that for- you want to get rid of that forward head posture. Yeah, that is not optimal. Um, and then everything else, I mean, it's important kind of. But that's that extra 1%. Well, and it, and it really just, I don't think it's practical to ask students to stand perfectly straight like you would see, you know, the, the choir, choir people with their hands clasped together, right? Like that old idea of what perfect singing posture looks like. like we, don't, we don't ask people to stand like that in a musical. Oftentimes they're sitting on the floor, they're sitting on a chair, or, you know, they're moving as they're singing. Um, or yeah, you have thing. to be able to use your voice in all conditions. Exactly. So in all positions. Exactly. So <laughs> as long as you're feeling grounded, like really feeling the floor under your body, feeling supported, um, and are feeling like you have access to your breath, then you're probably in an okay position for singing. All I'm right. a little bit lackadaisical when it comes to the 
very strict posture. Some voice teachers would be a little bit more rigid, but I, I say, let's get the voice doing what it needs to do so that it's working for you in whatever conditions you're going to be singing in. Yeah. Cause you don't know where you're going to be singing. Exactly. Or, yeah. So then you enjoy the storytelling of it. Mm-hmm. What are some tools you use to tell a story? Yeah. Well, so of course, when we're singing, we are so blessed because 99.9% of the time we have text. So we have words, we have those lyrics. So I love diving into that and saying, okay, so this is, I mean, most of the time it's some kind of poetry, right? Um, Whether that's modern poetry or ancient poetry, doesn't really matter. We can look at the words and be like, okay, what what is it that we're really talking about? How can we use these words to tell our story and if it's something like if you have a you know seven-year-old kid singing a song that they brought to you because they're like oh this is my favorite song on the radio right now and it's all about love and it's way over their heads right like they're not going to be able to tap into that it's like okay so they're talking about like uh, their boyfriend can we talk about pizza or your dog Right. And so sort of finding those things that are really relatable to the singer, depending on the level that they're at, depending on who they are as a person, and then allowing ourselves to explore that emotion. So um, if they're having trouble connecting to the lyrics in a song, then I'll say, okay, well, this is the situation that's happening here. Can we find something in our own lives or uh, something that we could imagine in our own lives at least um, that would elicit a similar feeling? So you tap into the emotion to get the story to be told in the proper way. Exactly. Exactly. And then we can do a whole bunch of, once we've like got all that sort of bare bones stuff, then we can do a whole bunch of fun things like different words. So I don't know, maybe you're singing about fresh water and you could like elongate that fresh (laughs) sound, right? And like here, right? Then we get to use the sounds of the words and it's, oh, it just gives me little shivers because it's so nerdy, but it's so delicious at the same time to really use the sounds in our language um, to create yeah, well, the story. Well, you can feel it too. Yeah. So then what's the most fun part about using your voice? Oh, all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I think it really, like it comes down to play. So for me as a singer, um, just being able to see like, Ooh, what sounds can we, can I make? And how can I take whatever it is that I'm singing? I sing a wide range of stuff. I like to sing pop music. I love to sing uh, musical theater. My degrees are in classical. So I've done lots of opera too. Um, so if I'm looking at something, it doesn't really matter what it is. It's how can I take what I've got Use, you know, sort of the parameters of the genre because classical music has a lot more rules than pop music, for example. (laughs) Um, So, you know, within sort of these parameters, how can I make this my own? How can I best deliver this music so that I'm inviting people to connect with the story and connect with the emotions and connect to me? Because it's all, at the end of the day, it all comes to like getting to know the people around you and sharing something together. Yeah. What are some of those classic rules that you have to stay within? 
Like for for classical music specifically? Yeah, you were saying you had rules you have to stay in, but you can still try to explore. Yeah, so classical music has a lot of rules about like the way that it should sound. Um, so we don't really use like a straight tone in classical music. So if I'm singing uh, in classical, unless it's Baroque music, which is like quite old, um, that that would be a no-go. So we want that vibrato or that shaking uh, in the sound. Um, so that's one of the, one of the rules is that we want that consistent vibrato all the way through and we don't want a lot of like scooping. So classical music is very like tidy and clean. It's more about delivering what the composer has written. The compose, it's like a composer first genre instead of pop where it's very much singer first, right? So if I have a sheet music for Broken and Beautiful by Kelly Clarkson, for example, sitting in front of me. The notes and rhythms on the page are kind of a framework, but they're like a suggestion, right? I could be like, oh, no, I don't want to sing that. I want to sing it and add a little riff, or maybe I want to do a little scoopy thing, you know, where you have a lot more choices that way. Whereas in classical, it's like, you must sing these notes, you must sing these rhythms. Um, And then you can explore within that (laughs) using things, like I mentioned, you know, using the words in a different way. Um, We can play a little bit sometimes, depending on the time period with, um, how fast or slow it is and you know, stretching things out and the speeding back up. Um, so you can really play with the tempo and the delivery mm-hmm. in that classical while staying in those rules. Exactly. Exactly. <sighs> when you were talking about the, that word fresh and how it feels and sounds so nice, what are some other words that feel good? Oh, so many of them. <laughs> Um, you could think of like the word yum and using that M as like a, mm, right? Yum. Um, love is one that comes up a lot, of course. And I love elongating that love. And it, then it kind of feels like a, like a hug or, or you could say it in a different way. And then it sounds like a little promiscuous love, right? And you can just sort of play around with, okay, how thick is my tongue at the top of the teeth? And that will give you a slightly different L sound. How much experience do you have with voice acting? Um, Zero. What? But you have so much control? (laughs) (laughs) To be honest, I don't even know where you would start with voice acting, but it would probably be a lot of fun. (laughs) Definitely. Hey, so, Aaliyah, is, is there anything I haven't asked you? Oh, goodness. I mean... I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Should we call it? I think we should call it. This has been fun.